Good evening and welcome back to Amandla here on CQT 90.3 FM. And just to remind you, the best of Amandla is on our blog, which is CKUT slash Amandla, I do believe. Yes, that's what it is. Um, so Zara Malou is sitting across from me here in the studio and uh, she has a contribution to a book that just recently was published. It's called Against Colonization and Rural Dispossession, edited by Dip Kapoor. And Zara's piece is All That Glitters, Neoliberal Violence, Small-Scale Mining and Gold Extraction in Northern Tanzania. Zara, welcome back to Amanda. Thank you, Gwen. So let's start by setting the scene. Uh, Over the last few years, you have researched two communities directly impacted by gold mining in Tanzania. So there's Mm -hmm. the Anglo Gold Ashanti's mining operation in Gaeta, and then there's the African Barrett Gold or their latest Mm -hmm. formulation, Acacia Mining in North Mara. So could you just start by giving us a brief overview of the experiences of both of these communities in dealing with transnational mining corporations? Yeah, well, um, the North Mara gold mine, which is now, as you rightly pointed out, called Acacia Mining, um, is it, this is run by a Canadian company, and I was investigating their activities more several years ago. So mm-hmm. in, in those uh, investigations, we went to North Mara gold mine, we interviewed a number of people, um, and, you know, there has been several reports over many years of the killings that have been taking place around North Mara gold mine. Mm-hmm. Um, an investigation I also did was about a chemical spill from the mine that was going into the water that people were drinking and that what they were using for their livestock. And so there were also reports that a lot of, uh, you know, huge number of livestock were killed. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is, this, these mines have a very, a very long history of violence and militarization. Um, so that, that's what I was looking at uh, several years ago. And in 2013, I was at uh, Anglo Cold Ashanti's gold mine in uh, Gaeta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, similar stories of people being shot by private security uh, personnel that are employed by the mine. Um, it's really, it was really quite a, it's really quite stark, the, the, just the visual picture of this, you know, it's this enormous uh, open pit gold mine. And you have all these small scale miners that basically, you know, mine for gold on the slopes of the hill and inside the slopes of the hill. But this is basically the place where we were called Magema is basically the last place where they can mine for gold because all the, the entire concession areas, you know, is, a, is, is operated by the mine and and it's illegal for them to mine gold there. Hmm. So, so those are the yeah. So those were more what I was looking at yeah. uh, in 2013. And I mean, what you're describing is really dispossession. And in yes. your article, you talk about the mechanisms of dispossession. So, what makes it possible for farmers and small-scale miners with autonomous and relatively productive lives to find themselves? pushed off their land or marginalized from their long-standing economies. I mean, these were people who were mm-hmm. able to look after themselves, their families, create some sense of community and, and mm-hmm. an ability to have lives. And you're describing people who've been pushed away from this. So what are the mechanisms that, that make that possible? Oh, that's a very, very big question. But that's, yeah, so the chapter sort of tries to go into why this is possible. And really, it's possible for a number of reasons. Um, again, you'd have to go back in the history of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the whole entire extractive operation to understand why it is possible for large scale multinational mining companies to set up 
and to extract gold on the scale that they do and to dispossess you know these so many communities of farmers and small-scale miners and so the chapter sort of documents how you know the different periods the different historical periods in Tanzania's past looking at the very beginning in 1980 uh, sorry 1895 when the Germans basically instituted an imperial land ordinance and all the land that was not privately own, owned belonged to the German colonial state um, this then paved the way for the colonial government to award exclusive mining rights to companies um, then I go on to discuss you know uh, basically what it was like under the Germans then when the British took over what you know the kind of legal and policy the, the policies and uh, laws that they passed which allowed for companies to establish themselves in Tanzania and then you know I trace also you know it's it's, it's sort of like a very broad overview looking mm -hmm. at uh, what things were like under a socialist government and even under a socialist government you had a British company producing half of Tanzania's gold while the president was arguing for Tanzania to be able to have sovereignty over its mining sector. Yeah, and then so, more recently, the mining codes. Can you talk to us a little bit about the articulation of uh, present-day mining codes and how that plays a role in the dispossession? Well, uh, since, the chapter I, since I wrote the chapter, a lot of things actually changed. So in the chapter, I talk about the 1998 Mining Act, which... And a lot of scholars have talked about how this was actually drawn up by the World Bank mm -hmm. and written by a British firm that was specialized in liberalizing developing economies. Um, so the level of intervention by large companies, by private, uh, by private firms like this, this British firm, is astonishing. Um, and all external players. Exactly. Um, but recently, with, the, with uh, John Magufuli in power, things have actually changed, and he's suddenly taken a, a very different stance on mining companies, and this has sort of rocked everything. You know, people are suddenly wondering, well, this has never happened in Tanzania's history mm. to this extent. So, um, so that's an interesting development. Well, why not tell us a little bit more about that? Because it's true. It's not in keeping with this. And your article does, does a great job of... of bringing it deep into history and explaining how there are relatively mm -hmm. deep roots for this level of dispossession and control over land and resources. But what's changed recently? Well, what's changed is that uh, Magufuli has instituted a series of new laws. He's asked for $190 billion from Acacia Mining in taxes and interest and fines. And I mean, I was reading about this and, you know, uh, again, it's not what I what I researched for the article, but this is impossible for the gold mine to pay this kind of mm -hmm. money back to the government. And yet this is what uh, he has said they owe Tanzania in terms of unpaid taxes and fines and so on. Um, he also uh, instituted a ban on exporting unprocessed mineral ore. So there was a time when there was containers at the port in Tanzania and he you know, he uh, he ordered them to be checked. And they found that apparently, allegedly, uh, there was 14 times more gold than Acacia mm -hmm. Mining had actually reported in those containers. So he's really cracking down on the 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 multinational mining companies in Tanzania. And, uh, make you know, people are saying maybe he just, he really actually wants them out. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's a very interesting time to be uh, looking at the mining sector now mm -hmm. in Tanzania. Well, I guess time will tell on that one. Yes. We'll have to wait and see. But you, you introduce in this um, this whole uh, mechanism or structure of dispossession, you, you talk about the concept of coloniality. Could you sort of elaborate a little bit on that notion? 
Because yeah. I think it's a useful concept for understanding where we are at today. Sure. I mean, I, to be honest, it's not a, a term I would use because I think it's quite limited to, let's say, academic circles. Mm-hmm. To well, yeah, that's why I want to bring it up because it does come into your article, but you, yes. you do a very good job of, expl- of, of really, I think, making it a useful term for understanding what's going on. I mean, I, basically, f- the way I understand it is that it's basically long-standing patterns of power mm-hmm. that, that emerge from colonialism and continue into the present day. Basically, that's pretty much what it is. Mm. And, um, and uh, I think you can see, and this is what I try to show, is that the way in which the legal and policy infrastructure in the mining sector has evolved is you know, a directly a, a development from colonialism. And this is what enables companies to, to, to operate the way they do. This is what enables the dispossession to occur, how it, how it, uh, how it occurs. Um, because basically these sort of the, the, how would you say, they are permitted to behave this way because this is inscribed in law. The advantages that mining companies receive is inscribed in policy and in law and, has, and goes back all these decades. So, um, so I guess this is what I mean by, by coloniality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to remind our listeners, I mean, colonialism by really by its very definition anywhere in Africa or around the world was an unabashed system of, of taking resources mm-hmm. away from these colonies to the benefit of the colonizers. And so all kinds of structures were put in place, whether it was railway systems, telecommunications, mm-hmm. um, land ownership patterns or, or ability to um, take land away and the mechanisms that allowed that to be possible that... Uh, have people have managed to find ways to make those systems persist? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's quite astonishing. I mean, you know, I was living in Kenya the last five years and I think it's 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 really amazing how the you know, the basic things we know about colonialism as you've just described it, the the extent of violence that, that's that's part of it is you do feel it's been sort of forgotten in a way. And uh, well, it's almost like it's become normalized. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's how business has been done in Africa for centuries now, and yes. there's a there's a continuum. Yeah, and I think that uh, brings me to the other part of uh, the chapter, which sort of looks at why why it is that you know uh, what this normalization, how, how this normalization is enabled, and uh, so I also look at the sort of what I call the or and what many people have called the neoliberal myths. Yeah that um, that are you know promoted by institutions like the IMF. Um, I mentioned in the chapter how in 2014 the head of the IMF was talking about how how important it is to invest in the extractive sector, how important it is for private investment to happen in the extractive sector. And you know just around the same time, I think it was shortly uh, after there was you know an, an investigation on the in these mining sites looking at how, many people have been killed. And so there's this huge, you know, there's just such a contradiction between this myth, um, these sort of myths that are promoted by uh, international institutions like the IMF, that we need private investment, that there's this growing middle class in Africa, that Africa is now becoming, you know, independent, we don't need aid, we need more trade and economic development of a certain kind. Yeah, and you, you, you specifically talk about it that you, you know, it's, it's not your term, it's what's being bandied about. And it's this notion exactly. of the Africa rising narrative. Exactly. 
And do, do you think that Tanzanians are buying into this this idea of um, Africa rising? Well, um, I can't really speak to Tanzania as much as I can speak to Kenya, where where I where I where I'm from. But uh, definitely, I think the kind of the hyper capitalism that's taken hold in Kenya means that a lot of people do buy into these myths. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk about people, which people? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are narratives that you will find in the media very frequently. You will find it in, uh, you know, in, in, in all sorts of public discourses. But, you know, if you go to these areas, people are not, you know, the so-called economic growth that's promoted by these uh, international institutions obviously has, is, has not translated into a better livelihood for most people in the country. So, you know, it depends who you talk to. But mm-hmm. in ter- around, I would say, around the, the middle classes that are so much... Uh, promoted by this narrative, yes, I do think there are people that buy into this narrative because it, it, uh, it's, it's ubiquitous, yeah. unfortunately. And when you talk about what, you know, how does hyper-capitalism manifest itself right now, if we're talking about Kenya, which you know on a more intimate level, what does that actually mean? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's in everything. I mean, it's in the geography. Just, you, you know, over the last few years, you just see how the, the geography of the city has changed so much. And you see this kind of, you know, uh, elite class that's, become, that's concentrating so much of the wealth in certain areas. You see um, these, you know, huge buildings coming out. The, uh, uh, the ecosystems that support a lot of communities are completely destroyed. You see it in that way. You see it also in, in, in this kind of interesting, I would say, individualism that's come up where people... Um, you know, a lot of people have these sort of uh, desires that are very consumerist. And so in this, in this way, it's quite worrying that there is this uh, sort of like, you know, it's, uh, I would say it's people's consciousness that are colonized by uh, this hyper-capitalism. It's just, it's, it's, it's just it, there are so many different ways in which you see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know there's certainly, and you've referred to it in this article and elsewhere, this mushrooming of big malls. Exactly, as well. That kind of really mm-hmm. conspicuous consumption that's going on now. Absolutely, yes. Okay, well, I mean, obviously, in these stories, we talk about this, but there's always the other side of the coin, which is resistance and mm-hmm. that the opposition to this. So we're going to take a little musical break. And when we come back, let's, let's take a look at uh, the other side of this story, which is equally, if not more compelling.
evening and welcome back to Amama here on CQT 90.3 FM in Montreal. The time now is 7.25. We're supposed to do weather checks and <laughs> frankly, it's ridiculously hot in Montreal right now for September 20th or whatever we are. <laughs> Feels like a midsummer. So there's our weather report. Um, just to remind you, we do have a blog. So um, to check out this interview, if you didn't catch all of it or you'd like to listen to it again, it will definitely be posted and that's at CQT slash Amandla. So I'm in conversation with Zara Malou, who has a, a contribution to a book that just recently was published called Against Colonization and Rural Dispossession, edited by Dip Kapoor. And Zara's contribution is All That Glitters, Neoliberal Violence, Small-Scale Mining, and Gold Extraction in Northern Tanzania. And for sure, it's if it needs to be reminded there's a very strong and powerful canadian connection to this story so just to always keep that in mind mm-hmm. um but zara resistance is also a very important part of this story and you lay out very nicely the forms of resistance that these communities have exercised uh on so many different levels so can you talk to us a little bit about about that portion of your article Sure. I mean, uh, the whole book is actually about resistance. Mm-hmm. So resistance in uh, Asia, the Pacific, and, uh, and and Africa to rural dispossession. And in fact, that's really the focus of the the book. Is of course there are these you know historical um, uh, historical sort of exploitative dynamics in many of these these examples, but uh, resistance is definitely there. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, you know, in Tanzania, I think just if you, it's quite incredible. If you look at the amount of land that's that's been taken over by uh, multinational mining companies, uh, people still continue to mine for gold. And so my chapter really does look at how, uh, in in spite of um, the kind of violence that people are facing, they still, uh, you know, they have to make a living and they still go into those mining pits, and they they extract gold from those mining pits. There was a time in 1998 when. Uh, people actually uh, sort of um, attacked some of the mine infrastructure, which uh, which itself is a way of sort of demonstrating that this is you know this is their land, mm-hmm. and um, and so so yeah so the chapter looks a lot at the kind of examples that people through their very survival are resisting these these forms of violence and dispossession, and some of them have attempted the legal route. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as a yes. form of resistance? Yes, there was a, a court case in two. 2013, when 12 villages sued African Barrett Gold, now Acacia Mining, uh, which is a Canadian company, yeah. in uh, a British court. And uh, the at the end result was they, they did have to settle out of court. Um, but in a way, you know, I do think that the fact that it had to go all the way up to the, the court in Britain, I think, is also, you know, it's, I guess it's a strategy. It didn't, perhaps it didn't work out. In some cases, I think people were a bit disappointed with the outcome. But this is often the case with when you take the legal route and yeah. try to sue, you know, companies that have so much money, um, you know, it might not exactly end up in the, the, the greatest victory, but mm-hmm. it's nevertheless a strategy. And I think that, um, and, and also, you know, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the people who've been sort of keeping an eye on what's happening there, activists um, here, but as well activists in Tanzania, sort of keep keep on monitoring what's going on there so that people don't forget. Um, and that's, you know, another strategy that I think... So all these things together work to 
to keep the spotlight on these companies and and because you know a lot of these things take place very very far away from urban areas it's not easy for journalists to get there um, uh, so it's not easy to keep monitoring either and so these different strategies are, are really important for uh, to try and resist these uh, companies yeah and uh, you point out very effectively in the article that of course in the face of resistance the mining companies push back and um, I thought I thought it was very interesting how you talk about how they portray resistance and um, that, that you hearken back to the colonial days where how how resistance was portrayed in colonial days and that mining companies continue to kind of um, craft messages that are, are very you know an, att- an attempt to really um, kind of dismantle the power of resistance Mm -hmm. so talk to us a little bit about how you know these mining companies one of which is canadian how they talk about people when they say no actually you know this is our land and these are our resources and you kind of stomped in and took them away and Mm -hmm. in fact you open your article with a beautiful quote Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember it, if you have it in front of you. I do. I, I can read it if you sure, want. Sure, go ahead and read it. It's amazing. And I know this is from your film, too, which we mm-hmm. have to remember at the end to direct people to. But um, so this is uh, Ngombe Lukula Kadaso. Yeah. And he says, this is our home, not his. If I took my property and invested in his home in Europe, as a white man, he would never tolerate the same treatment he gives me as a citizen of Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So how do the mining companies portray resistance to the world and probably most importantly, their shareholders? Well, I think, again, you know, we need to go back to that, what you were talking about, the sort of normalization. And once you've once you have laws in place that you can point to and evade responsibility for what you're doing as as mining companies do then you know the 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 terms they use to describe people who are resisting them uh, is you know they they can get away with calling people for instance intruders or scavengers or you know these kind of terms that are very very frequently used. So even when I was interviewing uh, one of the companies, they said, "Well, you know, they were intruding on the site. It's illegal, and it is illegal in law. It is illegal. So it's it's and this is the this is the problem. The, the sort of violence of legal infrastructure is that all these sort of codes are inscribed in law. So you can just point them out and say, "Well, it's the law." And and so this whole argument of well, it's actually their land. Well, actually, this comes from colonialism. It just sort of uh, falls apart in the face of these laws, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so I also talk about how the media is very much uh, uh, sort of guilty of promoting these kind of really problematic uh, terms to refer to people who are actually resisting or who are trying to make a living by talking by calling them criminals or intruders or you know if 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 they they venture onto the mine property to actually attack infrastructure or to try and mine it's it's there you know it's it's always criminalized and so um, so, so yeah, those are the kind of terms they use, and it's also quite racist when you you depict you know ordinary Africans trying to 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 look for you know for means to make a living on land that is actually theirs, as if you know they're sort of these kind of crazy savages with machetes and with weapons yeah. and with and it's just you know it's a yeah it's 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 these are narratives we really have to interrogate, especially when they appear in the media. 
I agree. And uh, it, it, I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to back up again, but I'm going to skip ahead because I think it's relevant now. Towards the end of your article, I think it's in the conclusion, you, you throw out this, this idea that unlearning and remembering are really important uh, concepts and exercises if this cycle is to be broken. And at the very end, you quote uh, France Fanon, everything has to be rethought. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting thing because often in the discussions around mining and stuff, it's very just kind of this very just lay out the story and and this is you know this is egregious and unjust and everything. But you want you want to take it back to history, which I I really love. So this thought of remembering and unlearning what people are consistently told that well no this is legal, mm-hmm. so therefore you're a criminal for resisting it. Do you want to talk a little bit more about about that approach? Yeah, I mean, it's very much like what I was saying when, when I was saying that there's this odd sort of tendency, I think, I found in Kenya of not really talking about colonialism, not really... I mean, you, 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 how often do you hear in Kenya, just in public discourse, conversations about neoliberalism, mm-hmm. about the IMF, about structural adjustment policies, uh, about, you know, about everything that's taken place in the last few decades or even the last century that have made, in, in a way, that have made our countries what they are. Um, I think that's what I was, you know, trying to say is that we really need to go to the very basics of looking at what's going on here, the the basics of history, the basics of, you know, how did these companies come here, uh, you know, uh, what's what what are they actually doing here, you know, so just to break away break apart these narratives, um, so that people really interrogate the very the very basics of their history, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, so that's yeah. what I was. That's like how the door was open that has legitimized this kind of resource theft because it is legitimate, as you're saying, like it's presented as a legitimate exercise, exactly. and those who resist it are illegitimate, but. So effectively, in your in your article, bringing it back to the initial German intervention and the whole reconfiguration of land and ownership and stuff, is that opening the door to making this a legitimate exercise? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think you, I just wanted to bring up that you wrote a very interesting piece about the kind of normalization that takes place through uh, partnerships between multinational companies and. Uh, organ- uh, NGOs, for example. Well, yes, this is the latest kind of sour turn in this ugly story. And you, in your article, do talk about this kind of urban-rural disconnect. So most NGOs are certainly the powerful, well-funded ones are urban-based. And so certainly mm-hmm. that's, I would imagine, the case in Kenya, but certainly in your article, uh, in Tanzania, there are NGOs in the city doing their thing. And meanwhile, often these very remote areas are people of no means whatsoever, you know, leading their struggle in the face of these powerful transnational corporations. So talk to us a little bit about the role of NGOs, which still, I think, in the popular imagination, certainly here in Canada, are beacons of change and, Mm -hmm. and development and optimism and humanity and human rights and all of that. But... You make the argument that certainly in Tanzania, they don't seem to be particularly effective allies. Yeah, I mean, the this conversation, uh, I, I, I wrote about this in Kenya because I went to a, a conference where there was a whole gathering of NGOs to talk about mining. And, you know, Kenya is right next door to Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So Kenya doesn't have the same history with mining as Tanzania does, in, in I think, in terms of what's happened 
Um, but nobody, there was not a single person who actually talks about the, the, the people who've died in Tanzania. Not a single person. Not a single person from those organizations. So that what are, were NGOs saying about mining? Well, so they were saying that we need to implement redress mechanisms for human rights abuses. There was all this technical language about what kind of things we should put in place. That the, ironically, that the World Bank recommends certain things be put in place, so therefore we should implement them. I mean, there was just absolutely, you know, it was just absurd. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I think there have been a few writers who have written about how... Um, Uh, in this neoliberal sort of age that we live in, uh, mining companies are seen as development partners now for a lot of NGOs. Um, and so so now there, there seems to be nothing wrong with working with mining companies and having, you know, all these new programs that NGOs put in place. And Deep Kapoor talks about this sort of uh, state civil society market nexus where mm-hmm. all of these ar- actors are all actually working together and there is no interrogation of the very basic injustice and violence that lies at the heart of of extractive uh, extractive projects indeed and in the article that you referred to that i co-wrote with roberto nieto who's also an amanda contributor was exactly that where canadian so-called development money was being freed up budgets were being given to canadian ngos to partner mm-hmm. with mining companies to help them help the mining companies become more responsible agents of development and uh, you know for obvious reasons based on a lot of what we talked about tonight <laughs> that's an incredibly problematic notion now we're quickly running out of time so i'm going to have to skip through a couple of things but mm-hmm. i really feel like we cannot wrap up this conversation without a conversation about Tindulisu. Mm-hmm. So um, do you want to tell our listeners who he is and for the recent uh, news about him? Yes, sure. I mean, what I've heard is that he, you know, he used to work with the Lawyers Environmental Action, Action Team, team Layat, in Tanzania, yeah, yeah. who were actually monitoring a lot of environmental yes. abuses in Tanzania. And he was recently, there was an assassination attempt on him yeah. uh, and he was shot. Yeah, that was on September, as recently as September 8th, we got, well, that's when he, that's when he was shot. And I guess a couple of days later, we got the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually don't know much more than that in terms of what's, what's happening. But just the fact that it's ironic that we, you know, Tanzania, on the one hand, has a government that's really cracking down on mining companies. But on the other hand, you know, this just happened. Yeah. And so there's also a crackdown on, uh, I, I believe, on civil society in some ways. And so... Um, I have to say, I don't know the the context of what happened, but just Mm. the fact that there was an assassination attempt on a prominent uh, and a member of parliament now at this point. So Tundulisu has a long history here at Amandla. We interviewed him probably 15 years ago, but he came to light, I think really internationally and certainly came to our attention as a member of this legal environmental action team layout in Tanzania. And he very courageously stepped up and said that um, I can, that Barrett Gold, I mean, it wasn't Barrett Gold at the time, but they bought the company thereafter, um, had bulldozed a number of um, uh, artisanal miners in Bulianulu mm-hmm. in Tanzania. And these were charges that were never f- proven or disproven in court because it was never allowed to get there. But what Tundu did so effectively was went and got affidavits from mm-hmm. uh, many witnesses, many uh, victims, and he sat in, at my kitchen table probably 16 years ago and put out all the affidavits and said, how can we get Canada to hold a Canadian mining company accountable for these allegations of bulldozing to death? 
Mm-hmm. Small-scale miners who were resisting a yeah. large transnational company coming in and basically ripping away their livelihoods. And sadly, you know, our answer was there is no legal right. mechanism in Canada to hold a Canadian mining company accountable for these accusations of really mm-hmm. serious uh, crimes. And yeah, I, I mean, I believe those 52 miners yes. were actually buried alive. That's right. That was those certainly were the, the allegation. Yes. And uh, Tundu, you know, fought the good fight. He ultimately took it to the United States because tort law in the United States allows for kind of a third territory to hear these. Anyway, it never really ended up going anywhere, but mm-hmm. he was remarkably courageous, ended up going back to Tanzania um, Continue, ended up getting elected um, to Parliament, but as continues to be an outspoken critic. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, he and in general the members of the Tanzanian Bar Association are being are under extreme harassment mm-hmm. for any level of criticism around resource exploitation, corruption. Anyway, we'll follow up on that. Yes, uh, he was transferred to a hospital in Kenya. I'm not really sure what his state of health is at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Frankly, personally, I lost touch with him. He had twins and became overwhelmed by life. And we, you know, <laughs> shortly thereafter, didn't really have much conversation, which I completely understood. But uh, we'll yeah, definitely it's definitely make worth following all up effort to follow up. But the Bullion Hulu case is, you know, again, just to stress, is the kind of thing that we need to be remembering and thinking about. Yes. And, and, and not forgetting those 52, well, the reports of those 52 yeah people who are buried alive because this is this is what we mean by remembering as well yeah and a and terrible example of impunity and absolutely. now you know a, a decade and a half later one of the greatest champions in defense of those miners has been shot so mm-hmm. it's definitely something we need to follow up on now um Zara, I'm sorry, there's so much more we could talk about in your article, but could you point people to, um, you had you had produced a small film that, that spoke about mm-hmm. one of these mining communities. Could you point our listeners to that? Because it's a very beautiful piece yes. and it really drives the point home. Oh, thank you. It's a 50-minute it's a uh, documentary that's called In the Shadow of a Gold Mine, and it's available on, uh, you'd ha- I can't remember the exact link but it's on cinema politica's video on demand okay so if you just google cinema politica video on demand or in the shadow of a gold mine uh zahra molu you should be able to to oh, find it it'll come up okay sarah thank you so much for <laughs> okay joining us thank on you Amanda. very much gwen good night good night